So we've been working through the book of Exodus, uh, and just before Christmas we came to Exodus chapter 20, uh, which the first half of it is most famously known as the Ten Commandments. And we've been working through these kind of one by one, week by week. Um, so if, you've, if you're kind of new to us, maybe this is your first Sunday, a massive warm welcome. We really hope you feel at home here with us. But you might be thinking, why on earth am I in a church where they're talking about the Ten Commandments? That might seem a bit strange to you, as in that's the sort of thing maybe you would have expected the church to talk about 50 or 100 years ago, but it's perhaps not so much kind of grand, exciting thing that people talk about today, but obviously it's in the Bible, and we want to take it seriously. So just to catch some of you up, if you are new to us, let me just give you a couple of reasons why we particularly are working through these commandments one by one. First of all is because they're for a people who have already been redeemed. This is the most important thing for you to get your head around, is that the story of Exodus is these people, the Israelites, who've been rescued out of Egypt. They're in slavery. Uh, Pharaoh is this kind of evil, baddie emperor who was oppressing them in quite horrific ways. And the Exodus story tells about how God rescues them, pulls them out of slavery in Egypt, and takes them off to his promised land. So when we come here, when they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, receiving these commandments, it's to a people that have already been rescued, have been redeemed. So every week we start by reading these words. It says God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So that's how God introduces these commandments to his people to say, first of all, most importantly, you've already been rescued. You've already been redeemed, which is important for us Because we're not coming to these things thinking, ah, this is the list of things that I need to do to make God like me. These are the things that I need to accomplish to feel good about myself before God. That's not the case at all. Well, actually, the best way to perhaps to look at this is it's kind of God's guide to the good life. This is how God creates some boundaries and some structures for his people for them to really get the most out of life to really live a prosperous and fruitful life. That's really at the very heart of what these commandments are, is not to restrict you, but to release you into, into faithfulness, into fruitfulness, into the best way for you to live. It's really a picture of human flourishing. Also, another way to look at them would be as a, as a light to guide you. It says in Proverbs, we're gonna be jumping in and out of Proverbs quite a lot today, And in in between Proverbs 5 and 7 in particular, it talks about this issue of adultery and sex and lust, which we're going to be talking about today. But it says that these commandments is like a lamp and a light to your feet, is to guide you on the way. That's what these commandments are for. They're not like a dark, bleak thing to oppress you, but a light and a lamp to release you, to show you the best way to live. This isn't supposed to be a negative thing, but a positive thing to help us to find what it is to enjoy fruitful relationships. So I'm going to read the commandment we're looking at today, and then I'm going to pray. It says very simply, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to take these words so seriously. 
Because every time we open up the Bible, we want it to speak to us. And we know it does speak to us. That this is your word you've written to serve us and to bless us and ultimately, all the time, to bring us back to Jesus. Not just a light to shine on our own lives, but a light that shines on him and shows us who he is and what he's done for us. And we want to come to these words today and discover your grace, your freedom, and your love. And we really want to know what it is to live the good life. And we know that ultimately that is a life lived before you and following you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, would you be at work this morning to speak to us and to guide us and to do us good, we pray. Amen. Amen. There's a poet and an author, Wendell Berry, who's got an awesome name, who said this. He was talking about sex. He said, sex is the power that joins a couple together. That's how he described it. It's something that joins us together. It's a powerful thing. Actually, if you, if you look around us, in the world around us, in Amsterdam is a brilliant city. It's one of the things that our city is famous for all over the world is its attitude to sex. That's why many people, when tourists come here. And one of the most things you notice so obviously is that sex is incredibly powerful. The grip that it can hold on people's lives. The effect maybe it's even had on your life in lots of different ways. You're aware there's something immensely powerful in both a very positive way and in a very negative, dangerous way about sex. It's a powerful thing. And it's something that, uh, that Jesus recognizes because when he talks about this commandment, he says, he says this, you have heard that it was says you shall not com- commit adultery. So he's quoting to them Exodus 20, 14. But then he goes on to expand it and says, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Which is a sobering thing to get your mind around because you might have read that verse at the start and thought, oh great, job done. You know, I'm okay on this one. And we find week after week, we keep coming to these commandments and thinking, ah, easy, I've not murdered anyone, great. I've not committed adultery, but then he says this, if you've looked at a woman Or you could also say, if you looked at a man with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus takes these commandments. He doesn't just treat them on a surface level. He's not just giving us a list of regulations to follow. He penetrates right into your heart, right into the center of who you are. That's what the gospel, it's a wonderful message of who Jesus is and what he's done. It penetrates right into the very core of us, to change us, to transform us. And then he goes on to say, to use some quite harsh language, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you know, should you just get new glasses? No, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. You might think, did Jesus say this? It doesn't sound like Jesus. Very meek and mild. If your right hand causes you to sin, should you buy a new glove? No, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now you might think, oh, okay, why is half the people in this room only, should we all just have one eye and one hand? Jesus is kind of using hyperbole, exaggeration, 
He's making a very serious point to us that what goes on in our hearts within us is incredibly important because it shapes us. And he's using direct language because he wants to speak directly to us to wake us up, to grab our attention and say this is something that we all need to take seriously. Because you see, not is sex isn't just something that's very powerful, as uh, Wendell Berry said, but Wendell Berry went on to say, sex is the power that joins a couple together. And then commenting on marriage, he said marriage is the way we protect the possibility that sexual love can become a story. And that's what it's supposed to foster in a marriage relationship, a beautiful story a lifelong romance. And now, you know, if you're married, you'll think, hold on a second, my life doesn't look from like one romance to the next. And, um, you know, romance isn't like the movies, but that's what a married life is supposed to be, a journey together of growing closer together. And sex is this power that helps to join that couple together to seal that relationship this profound act of intimacy to draw you together. It's a beautiful thing. It's a God-created thing. God made sex. But sadly, when this love is betrayed, either by adultery or, as Jesus points out there, by just lust, when we betray it, that, that romance becomes a, a tragedy becomes a painful tragedy. And this power of sex is then turned against us to hurt us, to harm us. Perhaps the most famous story in the Bible is of David. The uh, kids were learning about him last term, King Dave, who in many ways lived this wonderful, fantastic life. He was successful, he was famous, he's the king. He was also, the Bible speaks of him as a man who was after God's own heart. He wasn't just successful in a horrible human way, he was successful in how he pursued God. You know, he wrote many of the Psalms that you'd read in your Bible today. And yet there's a tragic story of how after he'd completed all these accomplishments and successes, he saw a woman bathing and he decided that he wanted to have sex with her, even though he was married to someone else and she was married to someone else. He gave in to the lust in his heart. He has sex with this woman. He ends up murdering her husband to try and hide, to cover up his sin. It's a very famous story in, in the Bible. But it shows us this kind of tragedy of what can happen when this powerful thing, sex, when it takes over, when it begins to dictate to us what we should do and how we should think. The power is turned against us in a very horrible way. And although you might say that David is an extreme case, you might think, okay, well, you've got me. I've lusted, but I've still not let that turn into me murdering someone. Okay, just hold the phone here. I'm not quite like David, which is true. But if we go into the Proverbs for a moment, let's just see, as I said, these, there's a few Proverbs that deal particularly with this. 
issue. First of all, it says in the Proverbs is that lust, it takes your strength and honor. It says this, lest you give your honor to others, your years to the merciless. Let strangers take the fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. See, one of the lies of the world around us will say, you know, particularly to men, you know, if you're sleeping around, if you're having sex with, with a woman, or well, many women even, that that will make you a real man. And it won't. It will rob you of your dignity, your honor, your strength. Those are two characteristics that should define men in many ways. I don't mean in a physical sense, but in how men should carry themselves is with strength and honor. But what sex does when it turns against us is it robs you of those things, robs you of your strength, of your honor, of your dignity. It becomes a dangerous, hurtful thing. Whether that's pornography, adultery, whatever that looks like, when it turns against us, you know, if, if anything, we look at the, the, the kind of Me Too scandal of the last few years, that proves this to us. All these rich, powerful men, suddenly the truth is revealed, and all their strength and honor disappears. Their reputation is ruined, trashed overnight, because their strength, their honor has been robbed away from them by what they've done. Next, it brings shame. Next proverb, 6.33. He will get wounds and dishonor. His disgrace will not be wiped away. So what, what, what it does, I'm sure you've probably experienced that moment of shame. We just feel pitifully embarrassed for what you've done or what you thought. And I guess if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus... You might think shame and guilt, they're just religious problems, right? That's just things that preachers kind of put on us to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's not actually a real issue, it's just a religious issue that you guys just need to get over. But the thing is, if we go on to the next one here, Proverbs shows us that it's a bit like playing with fire. It says, can a man carry fire next to his chest? and his clothes not be burned. Again, this verse is in the context of lust and adultery. Can you f carry fire next to your chest and your clothes not get burned? You know, sex is like a fire. Fire can create warmth and comfort, or it can destroy. It's, it's the same thing. Fire is immensely powerful and is, can be... We all use fire every day to cook our food, to heat our houses, to provide us with electricity. It's immensely powerful in a very good, fruitful way, but in a very dangerous way as well. It strikes me that perhaps the most famous app for relationships and hookups is Tinder. Think of the logo with the flame on it. It shouldn't be something that entices you, but something that warms you that you're playing with fire, that you could get burned. You could get hurt by what's going to happen. And ultimately, 
what happens is it, it will dehumanize you. <laughs> Again, you'll think that, well, surely this, this is just what it means to be human, right? To, this body that I've been given to use it to satisfy me, my desires, that's just what it is to be human. But when you give yourself over to something, something, an, an idol, something that takes control of you, I'm sure you've all experienced that, that sense where you think, I'm, I'm not in control of myself anymore. This is addiction here that I can't handle anymore. This is a relationship that I don't quite, I'm, I'm, it's, it's beyond me now. We've gone too far, I don't know what to do with this. What's happened is you've actually lost some of your humanity. Strips you, robs you of who you're actually supposed to be. Again, it says here in the Proverbs, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. That's what you do. It's a costly thing, these desires. Burn things down. It will destroy things. It's dangerous. Perhaps the greatest tragedy for many of us is that it leads us into hypocrisy. Because maybe you're, you're feeling quite good about yourself right now. But the thing is, it's so often this leads us into just hypocrisy. Because what happens with David, to come back to his story, is uh, all of this takes place, you can read about it in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, a prophet called Nathan comes to speak to David, comes to challenge him on what's been going on. We'll pick up the story here. It says, uh, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, he tells him a story. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. He grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat off his morsel and drink from his cup, lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or her to prepare for the guest who comes to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So you see what this story is saying here. Rich man and a poor man. Poor man has this little baby lamb, raised as his own daughter almost. And the rich man doesn't want to use any of his animals to feed his guest, so steals away this lamb. You know, my, my daughter is currently raising a hamster. <laughs> Someone came and took a hamster to feed it to their guest. Not only would that be very weird, <laughs> but she would be very upset. As would I, of course. I love that hamster. <sighs> and what happens is, uh, it says, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Because he's the king. The king gets to make this judgment. So he's not just talking about a hypothetical thing. David is saying, show me this man and I'll bring judgment down upon him for what he's done. And then what does Nathan say to him? Nathan said to David, you are the man. He says, this story is all about you. You robbed something away from someone else to feed your own desires. 
you've caused all this destruction. He calls him out. You see, David's response there was just hypocrisy. Despite his own sin, he was happy to condemn and to judge someone else. And we do exactly the same. We're so happy to point out someone else's failures, where other people have hurt people. You know, again, this whole Me Too scandal is just this story. Outrage, how could they possibly have done that? You see celebrities being outraged, and then you find out months later that now people are just outraged with them because of the thing we discovered about them. It's just this circular thing where people are constantly outraged with one another. And we can fall into that trap. If with this sense of outrage, frustration, anger against everybody else, but never looking into our own hearts, never seeing what's going in inside ourselves. See, because like, like David, what happens is we've, we've brought into this lie that it doesn't matter. And um, Joel, if you were here last week, Joel explained this brilliantly for us. I encourage all of you to go and listen to it if you missed it or listen to it again. But one of the things he was pointing out is one of the great lies in the world around us is that sex doesn't matter. That what you do with your bodies doesn't matter. That if you want to go and use it to make yourself happy, go for it. It's the lie of the world around us. It says that it doesn't affect other people. It's just, even if it is wrong, it only really affects you. But it does affect relationships both the relationships you're in now and relationships that you'll have in the future. affects even relationships that aren't anything to do with you, but that someone else might go on and have in the future. There's something horribly destructive about sex that, that will break things down. Because essentially, sin is it's, it's antisocial. It breaks relationships. It brings pain. It destroys things, it doesn't build things up. It drives people apart. And why does it do this? Because you've got to realize there's this very deep connection between sexuality and spirituality. There's a deep connection between the two. Because I said, God made sex. It's a beautiful thing that he created. It's not something that we go, Ugh, that's disgusting. You're not supposed to, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to hate it, not at all. It's something that we can love and enjoy, but it's something that's transcendent. It's this very profound, deep connection between sexuality and spirituality. Because in the same way, you give yourself to another human being. It's this beautifully intimate picture of how God has given himself for us, of his intimate love and care he has for us. Just the overwhelming desire and passion he has for us, for you. And sex is just this picture that he's given us. This is wonderfully profound connection between the two. The, the Perhaps the most helpful way to describe this is uh, from a book, I've quoted it before, called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's a wonderful story where he basically shares this conversation between 
a senior devil and a junior devil, where the senior devil is giving the junior devil advice, and the, this junior devil has a person that he's trying to tempt all the time and lead astray. And the senior devil is giving advice on what to do. And in one point in the story, it says this. This is the advice of the, the older senior devil. He says, whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. <laughs> and the thing that the enemy's been trying to keep out of your mind is the fact that the idea that what you do with your body affects what happens with your soul. Because there's this profoundly deep connection. We try to think that kind of our physical thing is different from any kind of spiritual identity we have. That what I think and what I do are very different things. But it's not. It's all wonderfully connected. What you do with your body affects who you are, who you're going to become. What you think affects you profoundly or change you in radical ways. And the thing is, it's, as this story helps us to see from C.S. Lewis, this lie that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter, it's not just a lie of our culture, this is a lie of the enemy. There's something actually profoundly evil and demonic about this what we see taking place in our city, what you see sometimes even taking place in your own heart, in your own mind, there's something evil about it. And we know this because obviously this hasn't just been an issue today, but this has been an issue for thousands of years. You know, this week it was Valentine's Day. We celebrate Valentine's Day because in the year AD 269, Saint Valentine, well, didn't go well for him, let's put it like that. He was, uh, he, he was marrying Christian couples. Uh, so they put him in prison and they chopped his head off. Um, I don't know if it was exactly on February the 14th, but that's what I'm told. And thousands of years later, we send each other love cards and poems about a guy that was beheaded. <laughs> but he was, he was beheaded because... He believed in marriage. He, he believed in what we're talking about. In faithfulness and sex in that context. And because the enemy hated it, the enemy tried to destroy him because he wanted to destroy that whole idea. And yet, thousands of years later, it's not worked. <laughs> the enemy failed, but he's still trying. He'll try in your life to trick you, to lead you astray but it's a lie. What you do with your bodies does affect who you are. It says in Proverbs 5 verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. See, there's, a, there's like a net that's been thrown out, a net that's been cast and so easily we tumble into it and we get ensnared, we get trapped. And you can feel like there's no way out, that there's no hope, that you're lost. 
You think, I'll never be free of this. I'm always going to have this problem. But wonderfully, there's hope. There's a beautiful hope. Because we were singing about it earlier. What Jesus does is he takes broken things and he restores them. It's just a wonderful truth. I've seen it happen so many times where broken marriages, broken families, and by the grace of God, they're restored. It's not an overnight thing. Sometimes it takes years, decades of love and care. But God can take what's been broken and he can restore it. There's hope for you. And there's hope for people in broken marriages, broken families. But wonderfully, there's hope for, for single people as well. Because you might be thinking, well, this isn't a problem for me. I'm not in a relationship. I'm nowhere near a relationship. You might feel that your problem is just one of intense loneliness. And I think it's another lie of our culture is that sex somehow defines you, but it doesn't, it doesn't. Section, sexuality doesn't define you. Because on one hand, our culture says, what you do with your body's sex doesn't matter. But on the other hand, it says it does matter. The freedom to do whatever you want, to express yourself, to have that, that that's, that's a goal. It's held up as a prize. You must have that thing. That will make you happy. That will fulfill you. That's what it says about it. And sadly, I've got to be honest, even in the church, we can sometimes act and teach as though somehow marriage and sex are somehow the goal for, for single people that that's what it means to have reached some kind of elite tier of Christianity. That's what it means to have kind of, you know, got to the next level of the game. The next task before you is, oh, well, I believe in Jesus, I'm single, I must get married to be a, a proper Christian. It's not true. Marriage is a wonderfully good thing, a wonderful blessing to us. But you can still be complete without it. If you're single, it's very important that you hear that. I'm not saying you shouldn't get married, but if it becomes this idol for you, this goal, that you're kind of pursuing a life of purity just so you can get to that point, you might find that it will be a bit of a, not a letdown, but well, it might be a bit of a letdown when you get there. Do you think I've been building my whole life for this moment when I'll be fulfilled? And then discover that actually what really fulfills you is Jesus. And that's, that's what marriage is there for. Again, it's this beautifully intimate picture of how Jesus loves his church. It's pointing towards something greater, towards something better. And sex won't define you. It won't fulfill you. But Jesus does. And he will. And also... How are we doing for time? Also, there's hope for those who are, who are lost in addiction of many times, of many types. It says in Jeremiah, 
can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? I don't know if you've heard that phrase, the leopard can't change his spots. Well, it comes from the Bible. <laughs> and you might feel that about yourself. Like, I just can't change my spots. This is just who I am. I struggle with this addiction, this problem. This is just who I am. I'm never going to get past it. You can feel like you're kind of boxed in. The uh, preacher from a few hundred years ago, C.H. Spurgeon, he said, a mind, a mind enslaved by sin builds its own dungeon. Uh, we just brought a new house. There isn't a dungeon in it, by the way. Just to, but we just built, bought a new house. And uh, the previous owners, there were, there were two bedrooms that they knocked down a wall to make it into one big bedroom. So they knocked down a wall and they took out one of the doors of one of the rooms. So there's just one doorway and then one big bedroom. And uh, we wanted to make it back into two bedrooms. So I was talking to my dad about how we could do that. And uh, I said, oh, surely it can't be that difficult, can it? You just go in there and you, know, you build a frame and put some boarding up or whatever. Ta-da, a wall. And uh, my dad said, just make sure that you do the door first. <laughs> you know, don't go into the room and then build the wall and forget to open up the door because then you'll be stuck in the room. And he was being funny, but I literally hadn't thought of that. <laughs> just hadn't occurred to me at all. All I had in my mind was I need to build a wall. I was going all Trump on it. It's like, we just need the wall. Everything's going to be fixed if we just get the wall. Forgetting that we might actually need the door as well. But I'm being silly, but there's a serious point here. Is that you can feel a little bit like that that you've, you've boxed yourself into a room and you've tried all sorts of different ways to get out and none of it has worked. You can feel trapped, locked in. And you can even feel like you're aware, well, I've done this. In my repeated mistakes, I've trapped myself in and there's, how do I get out of here? And it's, it's true in a sense, it says in, Proverbs that we, you know, we, we destroy ourselves. And on one hand, you destroy yourself, but you can't save yourself. We make this net that captures us, but we can't break out of it. But yet, Jesus can. He really can. And it, it might be because you might even hear that and you think, well, I've, I've heard people say that for years and yet I still don't see it in my life. It might be because you've heard that and your response is kind of almost one of inspiration. Yes, I know all these things are true. I'm going to go and change. And your response to the gospel is to go and do things, which isn't necessarily bad. But you might still have not really dealt with the root problem in your heart and it might be sometimes the best way to break that is actually to go and talk to somebody because the thing is in the fact that you want to change but you don't want to tell anybody about it that still suggests that maybe you're, you're trying to be in control of this even though you know you're actually out of control but you want to fix it yourself you don't want anybody else to come in on that journey. You, I've, I've got to do this to prove myself. I've got to fix it. 
Whereas actually the best way to really let Jesus fix it and not you is just to find somebody and talk to them. There's something about doing that that just breaks the power of sin right there. Like be a close friend, partner, like just be a random person in the church. You think, I just need to tell someone. And the thing is you'll find is most likely their response will be one of overwhelming love. Because that's the, the, the fear that you'll build up inside of yourself is you think, I'm the only person with this problem. I'm the only person like this. When the reality is, it's, that's not true. There are many, many, many people in this church who will either be struggling or will have struggled with many issues of lust. All sorts of issues of the power of sex turned against us. Just find a brother or sister and just ask them to pray with you. Share your story. And in doing that, you'll find you'll suddenly, that's the, the door that you need to open to let God into your life. Because the most wonderful thing really is that, see, in all of this, I guess what we're really talking about is this issue of faithfulness. It was the title of this message, Faithful Sex. Faithfulness. And if we're really honest with ourselves, I think there'd be very few of us here that would be able to say in this issue of sex, sexuality, lust, whatever it is, there'd be very few of us that could say, I've been faithful with it. There's a beautiful verse in 2 Timothy that says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's the wonder of this message that all through Jesus' life, he lived perfectly, faithfully, with purity to come and save you, and to redeem you from all the ways that you failed, all the ways that you've been unfaithful. He was faithful, and he still is faithful for you. Okay, I'm going to pray, and the band are going to lead us, and uh, we'll share communion together. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that, um, God, I know these are uh, heavy words this morning, uh, but we know that your, your grace is so much greater, so much deeper, that it comes and penetrates in. We thank you just for your wonderful forgiveness. I was reading in Leviticus just this morning of all the different sin offering, all the different types of sin offerings that the Israelites had to bring for certain sins. They did this and they had to do this, this and they had to do this. Just three chapters of it. But the wonderful thing at the end of each one, be a few paragraphs and then it would say, if you do this, you shall be forgiven. You shall be forgiven each time. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came and died now as the once and for all sin offering for us. So that all of us here today that are followers of you can know your forgiveness. God, we thank you that sexual sin can sometimes feel like the unforgivable sin, but it's not. Your grace is bigger 
and deeper. It forgives us. It rescues us. It takes out our shame and disgrace. It stands us on our feet again. It takes all the ways we've destroyed us and dehumanized ourselves. It makes us human again. And we we have people here this morning that wear your robes of righteousness, washed whiter than snow, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything you've done. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. Amen.